greater understanding of the cross and the miracle of our great high priest. Lord, I pray that you would give me strength in my weakness. I pray, Lord, you give me the words to say. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You got your Bibles this morning, Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. This morning we're going to focus on verses 15 through verse 22 of Hebrews 9. And the title this morning is The Necessity of the Death of Christ. The Necessity of the Death of Christ. We're going to look at really 15 through 22. And I was thinking about a passage as I was studying this in Galatians chapter 2. Because often you find people at least begin to give pushback as to the necessity of the sacrificial death of Christ. Why is it so important? Paul says in Galatians 2.21, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. It, It had me thinking, I was in Huntsville the other day, And I drove by a church that I know as progressive in the way they think. Their views are progressing throughout history to become more and more liberal to fit the culture. And one of the things that it said, one of the big thrusts on the sign was that they were calling the church to give back to the community. And it hit me, I was thinking about something. If our biggest takeaway as a church, is to give back. I would suggest it comes from a misunderstanding of the gospel completely. There's no amount of social good that trumps the life-saving message of Jesus. It will inevitably accompany that message, but to give it prominence over the gospel actually undermines the necessity of the death and the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus. And a lot of times what happens is, in progressivism, is that we take more of a Judeo-Christian ethic. We take more of Christ as example, Christ as the model for how we ought to live, and we seek to apply that principle in the way that we deal with society. But here's the problem. If we put that over the message of the cross, We have no ability to offer any good to society. And so what we look at in Hebrews is that these dear people that are Jewish that have trusted Christ are tempted to go back to Judaism. And even as they're tempted to go back to Judaism, the author of Hebrews says, look, you've got to understand, if you go back to the old covenant, if you go back to the priesthood of Aaron, you go back to a powerless covenant, you go back to a covenant that does not give you access You go back to something that cannot save. Hebrews chapter 9. I want to read to you starting back in verse 11. I want you to see how he builds this. Last time we were in 11 through 14. Notice how it connects to verse 15. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify 
for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. This morning, as we examine the necessity of the death of Christ, we're going to look at three observations, three key observations as we move through these verses as to the necessity of the death of Christ. The first one I want you to notice in verse 15 is the blessings delivered. The blessings delivered. In verse 15, therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. When we think about a mediator, we're dealing with one that satisfies the claims of God upon man, as one lexicon puts it. I think that's a really good statement. Jesus Christ satisfies the claims of God upon mankind, thus becoming our mediator. He's the mediator designed by God from eternity past, but fulfilling what we could not fulfill on our own. He meets that standard. He fills the gap. He acts as a substitute. We've seen this word used in Hebrews 7 and in Hebrews 8, and we'll see it in Hebrews 12. Look at Hebrews 7. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. That's not the verse, but it's a very good verse. Hebrews 8, 6. Keep going. In 8.6, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. That's a bad feeling when you don't know why you put that there. I'm sure there was a reason, maybe. Um, in Hebrews 12, look what he says. And to Jesus, how does he refer to Jesus? The mediator of a new covenant. And to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And, and Paul says it in 1 Timothy, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. He's the mediator. Um, one commentator said he accomplished in one act 
what the work of the old priest only symbolized in many repeated acts. Jesus' supreme act of mediation was his own death on the cross. Immediately, we, we come into this and we see that this, these blessings are through a mediator to the called, to the called. Notice how he develops this. He's a mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. This is a fascinating, phenomenal term. And it speaks about the calling that God has on us into salvation. Um, one lexicon says, to call into the kingdom of God means to the duties, privileges, and bliss of the Christian life. You know, one of the mysteries of the faith is that if we went around the room today and said, hey, come up, open mic, you can share about your story, you would inevitably, if you're a Christian, you would speak about how you believed in Jesus Christ. Somebody might even say it was the best decision you ever made. But you know what we learn in the scripture? We come into the family, we learn the secrets of the family. And one of the secrets of the family is that we believed as a result of our calling. Not it goes, it's interesting. We go, wait a minute, we're, we're called to be responsible. We believe, but we go back and we see the sovereign hand of God in our life. And we see that our belief was a result of the calling of God. And you go, wow, how wonderful. Uh, you know, so many times in the New Testament, when we see this emphasized, the author of the scriptures writing to believers who are cast out, I think about the, our precious brothers and sisters in Afghanistan. They may be scum to the people and the leaders and the terrorists within that area of the world, but they are the called of God. They are precious in his sight. And so often, whether it be in Peter, whether it be in Ephesus, whether I mean Rome or in Ephesus, or whether it be, it looks like again in Rome, that the authors of the scripture are calling through the power of the spirit for believers to know that they are the called of God. They are the called of God. God had us on his mind. Romans 8.30 says, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. I'll tell you, one of the hopes that I have is how in the world can we endure? I don't know about you, but I've let myself down many times. I've let people I love down many times. How in the world am I going to endure before a holy God? It better be bigger than me. And it better rest on his power and not mine. But thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, we come to such a wonderful salvation and we see that apart from the calling of God, we would never make it. But what do we see here? We see he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. I love this. You know, a lot of people say, why in the world would you teach on the perseverance of the saints tonight at 530? Well, I'll tell you why. Because the hope that we will endure is that it is because of our calling, our calling is linked 
to the reception of the promised eternal inheritance. I love that. Do you realize that if you're called by God, it's effective? If you're called by God, it is linked to the reality that you will receive the inheritance? The question becomes, have you been called? Have you trusted Christ? What I love about this is when we look at the scripture, it flips it right back around. There's no one who desires to believe on Jesus Christ that is not welcomed into the family of God. Whoever comes unto me, Jesus says, I will never cast out. You may be here today going, wait a minute, wait a minute, am I called, am I called? The means through which the calling of God is received is through people responding by belief and faith and trust and repentance unto Jesus Christ. So I've got, new, I've got great news for you this morning. Whosoever will may come. And if you're here today and you're going, wait a minute, what about me? The offer goes out to you. And anyone who believes on Christ, anyone who desires to come, can be confident through the Holy Scriptures, they will never be cast away. But if you come, dear one, be confident in the reality that you only came because of a divine and heavenly calling. And he says, look, this is a calling. And this calling, he's the mediator of a new covenant in order that, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. I love this. You know, how in the world... I've been reading stories and testimonials and we're talking about Afghanistan and we're talking about Christians over there that represent the persecuted church all over the world. How is it that those dear brothers and sisters can go to church this morning or can go to church the times different when they went to church? I can't remember after or before, but here's the deal. Why can they go? Because their hope is in an eternal inheritance. Think about that. You remember Jesus says, fear not those who kill the body, but fear the one who can put soul, the soul in hell. And what happens is they basically, and I paraphrase that poorly, but basically what he's saying there is he's saying, look, don't have a greater fear of the physical than the reality of the spiritual. But the promise is this. I love this because you're probably tempted to be like me. I often focus way more on the temporal than I do the spiritual. Can you relate with me? I, I find myself a lot more interested often in the temporal. And what, what did we learn here? We see that the new covenant brings spiritual blessings. The old covenant could only affect an outward area of purification. The new covenant affected us inwardly. It affected our conscience. It cleansed us. It purified us. It gave us hope in the spiritual realities that Christ has fulfilled for us through the cross. A promised eternal inheritance. When we think about the calling of God, look at a couple more verses. God is faithful by whom you were called into fellowship. Ephesians 4, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. I love this. This calling is a calling unto a holy calling who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. 
which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Do you re- this is amazing, astonishing. Before the ages began, this morning you may be thinking, here we are gathered in Scottsboro, Alabama, here on August 29th, and you're thinking, wow, do you realize you're connected to saints of old? And here's why. Because before the ages began, God had purpose to make Christ the mediator of a new covenant to call a people to receive the promised eternal inheritance. And guess what? We stand hand in hand with the saints of old who look forward to the cross with the saints who look back to the cross. We stand hand in hand as recipients of the blessings because Christ has inaugurated a new covenant. Amen? That's good news. That's good news. You mean to tell me that I'm not just some modern day, I believe, 2021? No, we're linked with all the saints of old to eternity past, to the heart and the plan and the will and the wisdom of God that he brought about in Jesus Christ. An eternal inheritance, First Peter tells us about it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. My best friend growing up, Doug, he uh, one day called me up and he said, man, you won't believe what happened. I was like, what? He said, man, this dear, sweet lady that is in my church that I visited and, and called on for, for years just to take, you know, to look out for She died, and I got a call that I received an inheritance from her, and I let him have it. I was like, why are you visiting this old lady to get money from her? (laughs) Now, he didn't do that, but what happened? She gave him an inheritance. She gave him some money. It wasn't an astonishing amount of money, but it was a good amount of money. She gave him money. What happened? He received the blessings because he was in the inheritance. I've got good news for you today. Do you realize that the scripture is filled with the promises that Jesus has given us of the spiritual blessings that are ours in Jesus Christ? Future blessings that we receive not only in the present, but blessings that are yet to come. Blessings that are ours because of Jesus. So we go through here. And what does he say? He keeps going. Since a death has occurred. So what he's going to do is he's saying, look, there has to be death. He's establishing the fact that it was necessary for Christ to die. Because a will does not go into effect until you die. And then he's going to say in verse 22, so you can sort of see this all together. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. So what he wants them to see is the blessings of the inheritance, the blessings the new covenant brings, it has to have a death in order to be affected. It has to have a substitute, the substitute that we have in the new covenant is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he speaks about since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. This is fascinating because here he's dealing with these Jews that were coming out of the old covenant into the new. And he's speaking about how does this transition work? Well, they're redeemed. They're purchased with a ransom because of the crucifixion and the, the substitutionary death of Christ. 
But what's wonderful here is, I love this quote out of one commentary. People often wonder how Old Testament believers were saved since salvation is only through Jesus. They were saved on the same basis as believers. He goes on, one of the first accomplishments of Jesus's death was to redeem all those who had believed in God under the old covenant. After Christ died, they saw what had only been before a promise. It was a certain promise, a guaranteed promise. But until the Messiah's atoning death, it was an unfulfilled promise. The point being made here to the writer's original readers who were Jews, both saved and unsaved, is that Christ's atoning death was retroactive. I love this. Romans 3, what does it say? We are justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, Paul says, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. I love this. It was, the promise was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He redeemed those trusting in him, looking towards the promise. But we see the blessings delivered. We also see a will established, a will established. The word that's used here in verse 16 and 17 is the same word used for covenant. If you're, if you're reading out of a New American Standard, you've got a translation that says covenant. If you're reading out of the NIV or the ESV, your translation says will. And the reason why it's the same word, the, the word can mean covenant, it can mean testament, it can mean will. And, and when we look at the word will, it basically is illustrating the fact, as one said, the benefits and the provisions of a will are only promises until the one who wrote the will dies. Think about it. Until there's death, the provisions of the will don't go into effect. Today's an interesting day on the calendar for me. It was five years ago today my dad died, August 29th, 2016. And when I was approaching that day around the 1st of August of 16, I was with him and he said, Stephen, he said, if something happens to me, he said, I want you to do this, 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 and this. And he was pointing to the reality of this principle because the provisions he had set the provisions he had made would not go into effect until he died. But on August 28th, they were not in effect. But on August 29th, five years ago today, those provisions went into effect because he was the writer of the will. Make sense? There has to be a death in order to affect the establishment of a will. And what he's speaking of here is, he's saying, look, Christ had to die. The death of Jesus was necessary in order to receive the provisions and the benefits and the blessings of the will. The blessings of the covenant don't come until the death is enacted. We saw the blessings. Here he's speaking of the inheritance that's going to be for the new covenant community. But we saw in Jeremiah 31 a lot of blessings. We saw that he would make a covenant. We saw that not like the covenant that would be made before. And then here, looking at the underline, 
What were some of the blessings and the provisions of this covenant? I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. He goes on. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. We saw other provisions of this covenant in Ezekiel 36. I will sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean. And then he goes on in verse 26, and he says, and I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, give you a heart of flesh. He goes on and on. I'll put my spirit within you. These provisions, these blessings. And what did we just read in verse 15? That the promise of an inheritance comes through the new covenant. This was to be realized as a result of the death of Jesus Christ. I love this. Um, Al Mohler says it this way. He says, the author explains that the covenant is like a last will and testament, just as a last will and testament bequeaths gifts to others after the death of the testator. So also the death of Christ results in the giving of gifts to members of the new covenant community. And the author of Hebrews is saying, look, as he establishes the necessity of death, he's saying, look, the will doesn't go into effect until death takes place. And he points to the reality of what Jesus would do. Listen to what Spurgeon said. I found this quote somewhere else, but this is really helpful. If there be a question about whether a man is alive or not, you cannot administer to his estate. But when you have certain evidence that the testator has died, then the will stands. And then Spurgeon says, so it is with the blessed gospel. If Jesus did not die, then the gospel is null and void. The gospel without the death of Christ is a powerless gospel. Any type of feel-good Christian ethic that comes from Christianity that dismisses the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ is not a Christian gospel. It's a message of the world that brings Christ and distorts his purpose in the midst of it. You see, what we look at here is this is a new covenant in my blood. Look at this, Luke 22. Why do these words use like this? Here he is going to the cross at the last supper and likewise the cup after they had eaten saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Why? His death would bring these promises, benefits, and provisions into effect. The necessity of the death of Christ. Thirdly, not only the blessings delivered, the blessings delivered, a will established, but thirdly, a substitute required. And what he does in verses 18 through 22 is he wants to illustrate to these Jews, he says, look, even the first covenant came into existence through blood. Even the first covenant came through and it showed the necessity of a substitute. The passage that he quotes from here is actually, we see this, this words in Exodus 24. In Exodus 24, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. 
And then in verse four, we see he wrote down all the words of the Lord. You get into the next verse, what does it say? And he sent a young man of the people of Israel who offered what? Burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. Now notice the blood that's mentioned here. And we get into the next one. And Moses took half of the blood and put it on basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. So what, what, what he's demonstrating here, the author of Hebrews, is he's saying, look, as he moves to verse 22, when he says, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins, he starts out and he says, look, if there's a will, the will doesn't go into effect until the person dies. And then he goes back and he says, look back at the old covenant. Look back at the very first covenant with Moses in Exodus. And what do you find? That first covenant, it was necessary that blood inaugurate it, that blood bring it into effect. And so what he does here is he's showing them the reality of the need of the death of Christ. I love this because Dave Guzik says, therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. Clearly, death was necessary to the old covenant. Virtually every part of the sacrificial system under the law of Moses was touched by blood in some way or another. Another man says, in this covenant initiation ceremony of Exodus 24, he speaks about that the shedding of blood was the inauguration sign of the covenants. The shedding of blood represented the beginning of a covenant and the forgiveness of sins. This is the theological heart. Just as the first covenant was inaugurated with the death of animals and the purification of the tabernacle by their blood, so Christ has inaugurated a new covenant with his blood and has thereby accomplished the forgiveness of sins. You see, the shedding of blood was the inauguration sign. The shedding of blood, the death of a substitute, inaugurated not just the new but the old covenant. We need a substitute. We desperately need a substitute. And the substitute that we see is the Lord Jesus Christ who shed his blood. Look what Paul says in Romans 3, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Look at Romans 5, 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from him from the wrath of God. You see it in Ephesians a couple of times. In him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And one more in Ephesians, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We see the necessity of a substitute. This morning, as we look at this passage, as we think about the sacrifices in the old, as we think about all of the blood, I, I was reading that the Kidron Valley, if you go to Jerusalem and you're going up towards the Temple Mount and you go across as you're there by the Kidron Valley, the Kidron Valley is where the blood would have flown towards. They had to have a trench 
in the Kidron Valley for the amount of blood on the Day of Atonement. The amount of blood that would have been flowing through there. Can you imagine all the sacrifices that had to take place throughout all the families of the land, throughout all the pilgrimages that would have come to Jerusalem? And what was it showing? It was showing the necessity of blood, the necessity of Without the shedding of this blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. There's a passage that is really important to this in Leviticus 17. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. In this passage in Leviticus 17, many would have read and understood the primary, in their mind, significance of how it related to the tabernacle, how it would relate to the temple. But many failed to understand that this would be fulfilled through the substance of the Lord Jesus that would come, that would be our substitute, necessitating his death. As we recap this morning, what do we see? The blessings delivered a will established, a substitute required. I want to close with, I pray something that will will help you go home and understand this better. What are we learning here? You, You know, the first one I think we have to see is our sin, your sin has separated you from God. I pray you'd see this. Hebrews is just chiseling away at any attempt of self-righteousness by human works. How are you going to be made right with God? This morning, if you were to stand before a holy God, how would you have confidence that you would be accepted? The scripture is pointing through the book of Hebrews. You may be like, you know what? That's just a really tough text. That's a really hard passage to understand. It's illustrating that without The shed blood of Jesus Christ, we have no hope of the forgiveness of our sins. I pray we'd see this. Isaiah 59 says it very vividly. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Sin is a serious predicament. We stand separated from God. The book of Hebrews, line by line, is illustrating not only the depths of our depravity, but it's illustrating the enormous love and sacrifice of Jesus. It's like many have pointed out, we're far more depraved than we'd ever imagined. The only way that we could be saved was for God to remedy the situation. Yet what so often the approach and the response to our sinfulness, it's working a little harder, it's trying a little bit stronger, it's being a better person. I pray not to push you down, but I pray that the book of Hebrews is destroying the temptation to think that way. Your sin, there's no need of sacrifice if we're not sinful. 
But the sacrificial system was designed by God to point us to the need of a substitute. What did John the Baptist say when Jesus came along? And there he was, and he came up, and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Lamb of God, the perfect Lamb of God. The Lamb of God who would fulfill all of the Old Testament and all of the Old Testament sacrificial system. He would be the one who would affect the provisions and the benefits of the will. He would be the one through his substitutionary death who would bring about the blessings of the covenant. I love this. Isaiah speaks of it. We see the sprinkling in Isaiah 53 of what the suffering servant would provide. Your sin has separated you from God. But second of all, only the work of Jesus can forgive you. Only the work of Jesus when we think about pluralism, all pluralism is, it basically says that there's multiple paths to God. People say, you know what? Jesus is your way. The people over in this other part of the world, you know, uh, Muhammad is their way. This over here represents this way. But the problem is the book of Hebrews demonstrates that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life and that no one cometh into the Father but through him. It illustrates the necessity of a high priest who not only sympathizes with our weakness, but one who's without sin. It illustrates that Christ is the only way, that Christ is the only provision. Our sin has separated us from God. The work of Jesus can forgive us. It demonstrates the love of God. I love this. We've looked at it many times recently, but look what these words say at the very opening of the letter. But in these last days... He has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. And look at this next verse. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He passed through the outer portion of the heavenly tabernacle as he passed through the heavens and he went into the holy of holies of the heavenly sanctuary and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Why? His sacrifice was sufficient. Our sin separates us from God. Only the work of Jesus can forgive us. But here we see it. Those who repent and believe receive forgiveness of sins and the blessings of the inheritance. You may be with us today and you're thinking, man, you've been over my head. You may be a younger person. I want you to get one thing. I want you to see something. The love of Christ calls out to us today to see that those who are willing by the grace of God to turn away from the direction they're going and to look to Jesus Christ in faith they are the ones who are promised forgiveness of sins and the blessings of all the good news that Jesus brings. What doesn't matter today how many years you've studied the Bible, it doesn't matter how long you've been alive. The message of the scripture is pointing you 
that while you're a sinner, Christ Jesus came to save sinners. He came to save us in our sin. And today the good news of the gospel is that if we turn away from looking to ourselves to save ourselves, and we look to the beauty of the gospel. I love Galatians. It reminds me of Hebrews in many ways because when he says the law is a tutor that leads us to Jesus Christ. We look at the old covenant. We look at all the commands. And we find ourselves failing miserably. When we try to pull up the boots and tighten, you know, everything up and get ready to roll and be religious and get our act together, we find that all of our righteous garments are like filthy rags. But then we look to the beauty of what the scripture says, all we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This morning... Boy, girl, man, woman, look to Jesus Christ. He's the only one that can save you. Trust on him. His perfect life was capable of offering up the perfect sacrifice on the cross. Trust in him and you will be saved. Our great high priest, the necessity of his death. As we close the day, the inheritance is glorious. The inheritance is glorious. One verse. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Would you bow your head? Lord, thank you for your word. I pray, God, that today, by the power of your Holy Spirit, we would see the beauty of the work of Jesus Christ. I pray, God, that we would see the insufficiency of our own works. And Lord, I pray that, that we would see that your death, your resurrection, your exaltation, Lord, point us to the reality that there's only hope in Jesus. I pray we would all look to him, believe on him. I pray today, Lord, we would be like the tax collector in Luke 18 that cried out to you for mercy. I pray today, oh God, we would trust in Christ. Thank you for the free gift of salvation by grace through faith alone. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You stand with me.